Thank you for listening to Year 3 of the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. This week, I look at a proposed Texas law that would prohibit assistance with abortions. In the words of the law, regardless of where the abortion occurs and regardless of the law in the jurisdiction where the abortion occurs. I examine some of the constitutional principles implicated by such a law, in particular the right to freely travel between states. I then look at the very different paths that lie ahead, depending on whether litigation about those principles proceeds in the very conservative federal courts or the more liberal Texas appellate system. In July of 2022, a group of conservative members of the Texas legislature wrote a letter to the managing partner of the Sidley and Austin law firm, contending that that firm had been reimbursing employees for expenses related to abortions and stating their intention to pass new legislation specifically targeting that sort of activity. To quote the letter, first, it, referring to the new law, will prohibit any employer in Texas from paying for elective abortions or reimbursing abortion-related expenses, regardless of where the abortion occurs and regardless of the law in the jurisdiction where the abortion occurs. It goes on to say that this will be treated as a felony under the criminal laws of Texas. The letter continued. Second, it will allow private citizens to sue anyone who pays for an elective abortion performed on a Texas resident or who pays for or reimburses the costs associated with those abortions, regardless of where the abortion occurs and regardless of the law in the jurisdiction where the abortion occurs. It goes on to say that this law about civil litigation will be modeled upon SBA, the so-called Texas Heartbeat Act, and the enforcement provisions that it has that create a number of private attorney generals across the state. Are these proposed laws constitutional? On their face, they implicate a principle that's been in American constitutional law for as long as we've had a constitution, the idea of a free right of interstate travel. An interesting feature of that right, though, is that while it's been widely assumed and mentioned in a number of Supreme Court cases, it hasn't actually been applied in the context of that many specific laws. Probably the best example of how the Supreme Court has treated the right of interstate travel over the years is in the 1873 case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, a consolidation of a number of cases that came out of New Orleans relating to a conflict over that city's regulation of cattle slaughterhouses. The city had concerns about hygiene, health practices, and the slaughterhouse businesses at the time. It proposed to consolidate all that activity into one government-owned slaughterhouse. The private slaughterhouse operators in the city sued, arguing that this legislation violated their rights under the newly enacted 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and specifically the language in the 14th Amendment that says the state cannot interfere with the privileges or immunities of citizenship. The Supreme Court rejected that challenge and, in the process, basically made the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment not really meaning a whole lot. But it did, in the course of rejecting that challenge, define the general scope, however limited it may be, of what that clause protects. And it said that it protects certain rights of national citizenship as opposed to those that may be associated with belonging to a state, one of which being the right to move freely among states because you're a citizen of the country, not just one particular state. In the words of the court, a citizen of the United States can, of his own volition, become a citizen of any state of the Union by a bona fide residence therein with the same rights as other citizens of that state. 
And that kind of analysis is what we've generally seen from the Supreme Court about this right. It's been assumed to be part of the Constitution's protection of national citizenship to move freely among the different parts of the country, but it's been applied in passing in situations like this New Orleans dispute about the new city slaughterhouse business. Factually, the most relevant Supreme Court case in this area is Bigelow v. Virginia from the 1970s. It was really a First Amendment case about free speech rights rather than a 14th Amendment case about due process or equal protection, but it does deal with the issue of state regulation of abortion outside of its boundaries. The Bigelow of Bigelow versus Virginia was a newspaper editor in Virginia. His paper ran an ad for a service in New York that facilitated access to abortion services, not a provider, but sort of an intermediary that would fix people up with an appropriate provider for their situation. He was convicted under a Virginia law at the time. A majority of the Supreme Court vacated that conviction. And again, while the case really turned on the First Amendment's protection for what is called commercial speech, the kind of advertisement that ran in that case, the majority observed that a state does not acquire power over the internal affairs of another state merely because the welfare of its own citizens may be affected when they travel to the state. Powerful language. You have to keep in mind, though, that that case was decided a year or two years after Roe v. Wade. It was written by Harry Blackman, and one of the dissenters from that opinion was William Rehnquist, at the time the young conservative firebrand, today very much the philosophical inspiration for the conservative majority on the present U.S. Supreme Court. One has to look at Bigelow and its language about one state's power over another and take it with a grain of salt, given the setting of that case when it was written, who wrote it, and perhaps most importantly, who dissented. The right of travel got back into the headlines during the recent COVID-19 pandemic in the context of different states trying to restrict ingress and egress when they perceived there was a public health crisis coming up about a particular spike in COVID infection rates. While that led to a great deal of debate, it didn't actually produce that many restrictions and it produced really no meaningful court challenges. So while the right got a lot of discussion, there wasn't a lot of guidance generated from that discussion that's useful to us in evaluating these laws. Continuing the tradition that the right of travel has of sort of lurking in the background, it made a cameo appearance in the Dobbs opinions. In that case, which of course overruled Roe v. Wade and returned the issue of abortion regulation to the states, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence made this mildly cryptic remark. For example, May a state bar a resident of that state from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? In my view, the answer is no, based on the constitutional right to interstate travel. That's all he said. Didn't cite a case, didn't get further into the issue. That's probably appropriate. It's a concurring opinion. He doesn't have those facts before him. But even this statement leaves unanswered questions. What if it isn't a bar? What if it's the kind of civil lawsuit, the kind of SB-8 type of remedy, that was the second proposed law referred to in the legislator's letter to the Sidley and Austin managing partner? Would that be different? Or what if you had a restriction like the one in Bigelow versus Virginia that involved a restriction on speech or advertising or other sorts of communication about the availability of abortions in another state? Justice Kavanaugh's statement gives some peace of mind to those who are in favor of free access to abortion rights in the country, but it's not a complete statement on all the aspects of that issue, and in some ways it may raise as many questions as it answers about its application to specific laws. 
In some, then, there is a good bit of uncertainty about whether these proposed new laws about interstate travel, interstate communication, interstate assistance with the provision of abortion services pass muster under the Constitution's protection for the right of interstate travel. That right has, in some form or another, been around as long as there has been a Constitution, but it's always sort of lurked out there in the background of something that's been assumed, as something that's been used as a counterpoint to whatever is under discussion in the court at that moment, as happened in the slaughterhouse cases. And we don't have a lot of modern case law to guide us on its application, particularly in the context of the very intense very emotional litigation that tends to surround cases involving access to abortion rights. Suffice to say, there is room for argument on both sides, and there is going to be a great deal of court activity that may well find its way to the Supreme Court. Another potential source of legal challenges to such laws is the Dormant Commerce Clause. Article 1 of the Constitution grants the federal government, specifically Congress, the authority to regulate interstate commerce. The Dormant Commerce Clause line of cases say, generally, that this grant of power forecloses state laws in the area of interstate commerce, even if Congress has not taken action in that area. These cases are complex and fact-specific, and whether or not a court is going to be willing to strike down a state law about communications across state lines about a certain issue as violative of the Dormant Commerce Clause is an open question. There are arguments to be made on both sides. That said, I would expect any case that gets into the issue of privileges and immunities is going to also get into the issue of Commerce Clause regulation, interstate commerce regulation, and whether that is a matter of federal or state concern. Dobbs, of course, answers that the regulation of abortion itself is a state concern, but the communication and transmittal of information and people moving across state lines as a consequence of what states do, is that exclusively federal or not? That will be a subject of dispute. There are also more conventional-type challenges based on due process concerns about vagueness and specificity as well as First Amendment issues. I say conventional not to denigrate those. Those are very important legal principles, but we are at least used to seeing more litigation about that than we are about the Dormant Commerce Clause and certainly about the Privileges and Immunities Clause. For example, if you have a law about assistance, if it includes financial help, a debatable point, depending on how the statute is worded, what kind of help? Simply reimbursing through a general purpose, nationally operated insurance program, is that different than somebody writing a check in the state out of their own individual bank account? Does it include sharing information that would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment that is in fact accurate, factual, commercial type information that we saw in Bigelow? And of course, the First Amendment at its core protects statements of opinion about political issues. You're allowed to express opinions about crime, for example, because that's how we draft good criminal laws. You're allowed to watch shows like CSI, and you're allowed to then write an editorial about how what you saw in CSI affects your view of society. You, of course, aren't allowed to go to the next step and actually plot a murder based on what you saw on CSI. But that distinction is an important and a vital one, the distinction between make-believe and and creative thinking and then actually doing something. It's a distinction between engaging in dangerous conduct and engaging in productive conduct that results in better laws. How vigorously will the courts define that line and defend that line to maintain a constructive dialogue about these abortion-related laws in the future as opposed to shutting them down and deferring more to the state protection of the unborn? Overlaid on these substantive issues, the right to travel, Commerce Clause, the First Amendment, due process principles of vagueness, 
is the question of what the state interest is that's being evaluated under those constitutional standards. Traditionally, a state criminal law is treated as something particularly important. But what if it's the same subject as a state criminal law, and it's a very strong civil regulation, such as SB 8, not enforced by the state itself, but by those deputized to act on behalf of the state? Does that strengthen or weaken the consideration that the courts will give that? Or if it's not an SB 8 type of enforcement mechanism, it's just a civil law, Will that have more or less weight than a criminal statute, and how will precedent generated about a criminal statute apply to civil regulations? Those seem somewhat dry distinctions at first blush, but as we saw no less than a year ago in the litigation about SB 8, civil litigation with serious financial consequences can have the effect of shutting down an industry, as we saw in Texas, where abortion providers drastically scaled back their operations after the enactment of SB 8, and there's been really no meaningful litigation under that statute since then. In evaluating these substantive issues about what the Constitution says, the court is going to have to not only define them, but define their specific application to particular exercises of power by the state in the criminal law as opposed to regulation using civil legal methods. That observation leads to another point about procedure. It's particularly notable in the wake of Dobbs that the anticipated constitutional litigation is going to be proceeding in both state and federal court. The litigation about SB 8 in late 2021 established that state courts may and should hear constitutional challenges to that kind of state law. The federal courts did not want to intervene in litigation about those laws before lawsuits were filed, which means that the state courts will then take up constitutional defenses to them in the course of those cases, perhaps after the case is over in a motion to set aside some judgment that is reached there, and will then work their way out through the state appellate system. Now, ultimately, on constitutional questions such as the ones I've been identifying, the United States Supreme Court sits at the top either way. It has the power to grant a writ of certiorari, to grant review of a case that comes through the federal system, or a case that comes through the highest level of a state system if it involves a question of U.S. constitutional law. That said, the Supreme Court hears only a small fraction of the cases that apply for its review every year, which means that the lower levels of the appellate system, and particularly the intermediate appellate courts, as a practical matter, are the last word on a number of important legal issues, including constitutional ones. Here, we have an interesting contrast in the pathways that this litigation may proceed in. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the intermediate federal court of appeals for Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, is widely recognized as a conservative court on these matters. The best example is the SB-8 litigation, where the Fifth Circuit took a strong position against federal review of that Texas law at the early stages of those cases that was ultimately adopted in all the material aspects of it by the U.S. Supreme Court. In the state of Texas, in contrast, the intermediate courts of appeal over the last few years have become predominantly democratic. Judges in Texas are elected in partisan elections, unlike the federal system, and Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, the large population centers, the intermediate courts of appeal judges are generally have significant majorities, if not unanimity, of being Democrats. They could be expected to take a more liberal view of these issues. On truly significant issues, it doesn't make much difference. The U.S. Supreme Court will have the last word no matter what happens in the lower courts. But in the other 99% of cases that the U.S. Supreme Court does not hear, 
The question of whether the federal court or the state court has the last word on a particular issue is going to be very significant. And issues of state appellate procedure about what the state intermediate appellate courts can do and not do, what bases in state procedural law there may be to resolve these cases without addressing the entirety of the constitutional issues in them may become very significant as those who are trying to maintain access to abortion seek to take full advantage of the state system, while those who seek an expansive voice for state regulation try to guide those cases into the federal system and seek expansive rulings under the available procedural rules from those courts. In some procedural questions about state versus federal court and whether or not state courts can articulate state law reasons for deciding these cases that would deny review to the U.S. Supreme Court at the end of the day are going to become potentially as significant as the underlying constitutional questions themselves, given that there is such a variation in philosophical outlook between the Texas Intermediate Appellate Courts and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. The litigation will also likely feature players that aren't ordinarily seen in these cases. Civil rights litigation traditionally features a government, on the one hand, defending the appropriateness of a particular law against a challenge by the parties who are affected by that law. In abortion litigation, that traditionally has seen a prominent role for major providers in the state, Whole Woman's Health, Jackson Women's Health, and the Dobbs case. But the scope of some of these suggested new abortion laws reaches far more broadly than usual. It includes, in the case of the letter that we began this discussion with, employers who pay for services that have something to do with abortion. In theory, at least, it could reach transportation providers, the Uber driver or the airline that takes someone to another state, makers of maps, attorneys who provide advice about what is or isn't acceptable within the statute, getting second-guessed by some prosecutor somewhere, the interorum force of these laws, we already know that was sufficient to largely shut down abortion providers in Texas after the enactment of SB 8, that sheer effect of simply having a statute of substantial impact and reach will likely produce more litigation by people that are potentially subject to them than you ordinarily see in civil rights litigation. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how the cases will be resolved, but it does suggest that you'll see some different players, some different case names, and some different voices being brought to the discussion than what we've traditionally seen in this litigation for many years. In sum, in the wake of the Dobbs case and the return to states of the power to enact criminal laws and civil restrictions as well about abortion, some states are going to go a step further and try to criminalize or punish with civil penalties the act of traveling to another state to obtain an abortion, or relatedly, the acts of assisting someone with traveling for such a purpose. There are significant constitutional questions raised by such laws involving the significant but somewhat shadowy right to travel, as well as more recognized principles such as the Commerce Clause, First Amendment, and vagueness and due process protections that haven't really been applied in this particular setting all that much. Those are going to produce court challenges, and important procedural issues in those challenges will be whether they involve criminal or civil law and whether they are proceeding in state and federal court and are likely to stay in either state or federal court, depending on what the issues are and how they are presented. When Justice Alito said at the beginning of the Dobbs opinion that it was time to overrule Roe and return the question of abortion restriction to the people's elected representatives, we are beginning to see, as 
people dig further into that, that there are a lot of different representatives of the people who have a voice to bring to this, and they're all likely to be raising those voices in the next few years, both at the state house and passing new laws, and in state and federal courthouses in expressing various levels of opposition to those laws. The resulting activity is likely far more complex, nuanced, and at some level unpredictable than Justice Alito likely considered when he wrote that famous line in the Dobbs opinion. In this episode of Coal Mind, I looked at a proposed Texas law that would prohibit assistance with abortions, in the words of that law, regardless of where the abortion occurs and regardless of the law and the jurisdiction where the abortion occurs. It implicates a number of constitutional principles that at first glance seem contrary to the statute but have never been subjected to the kind of intense scrutiny that will likely be coming in the wake of Dobbs. I also consider how that substantive litigation may be affected by the procedural questions of where those cases go forward, in the very conservative federal courts or in the more liberal Texas appellate system. For upcoming episodes, I expect to continue having interviews with other notable voices from around Texas and the country, in particular at the myriad of issues developing in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening to a podcast that's now in its third year, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. Mm-hmm.